Section 10 of Clever Hans, The Horse of Mr. Von Austen by Oscar Funkst, translated by Carl Leo Rahn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6 Genesis of the Reaction of the Horse. In the preceding discussion, we have regarded the achievements of the horse, as well as Mr. Von Austen's explanation of them, as matters of fact. Let us now consider the question. How did the horse come by these achievements, and how did its master arrive at his curious theory in explanation of them? Did he indeed seek to instill in the horse's mind the rudiments of human culture through long years of painstaking instruction in accordance with the method described in Supplement 1, page 245? If this is the case, then, of course, his hoped-for success was only seeming, not real. Or did he, as so many critics aver, systematically train the horse to respond automatically to certain cues, and propound his theory merely for the purpose of misleading the public? There might possibly be another alternative. Namely, was there a mixture of instruction and of training to respond to cues? The production of the horse's achievements would not require a great deal of explanation if it were a case of mere training for the purpose of establishing certain responses to certain cues. It might be desirable, however, before deciding in favour of one of these possibilities, to indicate briefly the process of development, as it might occur if the point of view is taken that bona fide instruction was given. This development would probably be as follows. Mr. Von Austen, as the result of theoretical speculation or of a misinterpretation of the facts of experience, having arrived at the conclusion that the horse possessed extraordinary capacity, finally undertook to instruct a certain horse for a period covering three years. This one having died, he, nothing daunted, undertook the education of another one. What it was that influenced this old teacher of mathematics to deprive humankind of the benefit of his extraordinary pedagogical ability and love of teaching, we do not know. It may be that he had had bitter experience in that line, or again, mayhap the newness and tremendousness of this other task stimulated him. His first problem must have been to arouse the interest of the animal in this process of education. It was hardly to be believed that Hans could eagerly cooperate in a process which promised to yield him no immediate benefit. The teacher sought to overcome this lack of immediate interest by the means of rewards. To Hans, the sweet carrot was as toothsome a bite as candy is to the child, and since the horse was furthermore kept on low rations on account of the relatively low amount of physical exercise he took, the anticipation of the carrots was doubly enticing. The first thing that Mr. Van Austen sought to teach the horse, according to his own statement, was the significance of the names of colours and of the spatial directions such as up, down, etc. In the case of children, there is a simple test by means of which we may discover if they have put any content into these words. The test is, do they themselves use them correctly? Do they call the blue, blue, and the red, red? Since the horse could not speak, the instructor had to give him some other means by which he could make himself understood. He taught Hans to approach the colours and select the cloth of the colour wanted. He also taught him to make those movements of the head or body which correspond to the expressions up, down, etc. First of all, Hans had to be taught to bring the cloths. Then began the pointing out of the different colours, accompanied each time by their proper names. 
it is very probable that at first Hans had to be led each time to each separate coloured cloth and taught to raise it or to touch it with his nose. Later, Mr. Von Austen, after having pronounced the name of the colour, remained at his place with his head and body directed to the cloth in question and gazing intently at it in order to see whether or not the horse was pointing out the right one. Naturally, Hans would, at first, fail a hundred times where he would succeed but once, but since the horse would receive the anticipated reward in case of success, he gradually became conscious that this reward was attached to executions which had some special mark. This special mark would be expressed in human speech by the statement that the horse would go in the direction indicated by the position of the instructor's body. For Hans, of course, this would not take the form of an abstract statement, but simply of a definite way of seeing and of going and a correlation of the two in a certain definite manner, the whole being a process, the elements of which remained unanalyzed and unaccounted for by Hans. Owing to the position of the eye, it was possible for him to keep his master within his field of vision while he was approaching the cloths, and only when he had correlated his approach in a certain definite manner with his visual perception of the master, i.e. only when he had felt his way, as it were, along the latter's line of vision, did he receive his reward. A sufficient number of repetitions was all that was necessary to establish an association in the psychological sense of the term. In the same manner, dogs will learn, as was indicated on page 177, to bring an object upon which the master has fixed his gaze, it mattering little whether or not the name of the object be enunciated. There is only this difference, that in the case of the dog it is not possible to keep the image of the master within the field of vision, but neither is it necessary, for he has recognised the object before he has started for it. We must remember, however, that it does not simplify an attempt at explanation to assume that Mr. Von Austen consciously trains the animal to respond to certain bodily positions of the questioner. For, even in this case, it would be necessary to explain how it was possible for him to train the horse to heed the cues. In the course of time, the instructor may have noticed that whenever he moved during the course of a test, the horse invariably failed. But he may have regarded this merely as an incidental distraction, and afterward was careful to remain quiet. As soon as he increased the number of cloths upon the floor, it was no longer possible for him to give the horse such accurate directive signs, and the number of errors consequently increased. Ascribing them to the inattentiveness of his pupil, he sought to encourage him by such calls as look out, look there, see there, believing that, thus, he was directing the horse's attention to the desired colour. Without understanding the meaning of the calls, Hans learned, however, to keep moving just as long as the calling continued, for if he did this he was regularly rewarded. An association was established between the call and the impulse to move on. And with these two associations established, Hans gave the impression of having grasped the meaning of the colour terms. The origin of the proper movements in response to the terms up and down may be explained by the fact that the movements themselves were practised in a purely external fashion. Thus, whenever the word left was pronounced, the horse's head was pulled to the left by means of the bridle, or the reward was held off to that side. Later, Mr. Von Austen, who looked expectantly at the horse's head, whenever he pronounced the word would unconsciously move his own head in the direction which he desired the horse to turn. 
This is quite in accord with the words of Darwin to the effect that whenever we wish an object to move in a certain direction, it is well nigh impossible for us to inhibit an unconscious involuntary movement in that direction. Proof for this may be found on all sides in daily experience. Imagine, for instance, the strain sessions of the bowler or billiard player as he follows the moving ball. It is impossible to decide whether Mr. Von Osten consciously continued to image the head movements which he expected the horse to make, or whether these anticipatory images later remained below the threshold, as was always the case with Mr. Schillings and myself. See page 100. But this question is of little significance, for even assuming that he always thought of the movement he expected on the part of the horse, this by no means implies that he was conscious of the movements on his part, which were associated with the thought process. Everything up to this point might be explained as the working of simple memory association, but when we come to problems in counting and arithmetical calculation, we are in the field of conceptual thought. Here again it was necessary for Mr. Von Austen to invent a suitable means of expression for the horse, and once more this had to be borrowed from the treasury of gesture language. Tapping with the hoof was naturally hit upon as one of the normal expressive movements of the horse. This has long been used by trainers in preparing horses for show purposes. The method used in training the horse to make this response is of no import. Whether it was by touching his foot with the hand, or tapping his leg, or by any other means. It is possible that many will declare, as being nonsensical, any attempt to introduce number concepts. Footnote. The author intends to take up the problem of counting, so-called, on the part of animals, and of the principle involved in another work soon to be forthcoming. End of footnote. Into an animal's mind because the necessary motor basis is lacking. We will not, just at this point, stop to discuss whether or not it was not possible to develop number concepts from purely auditory or visual representations. It is evident, however, that Mr. Von Austen believed that a motor basis was some sort of essential. In the case of man, this basis is found in the enunciation of the number names, or in the manipulation of the fingers. Mr. Von Austen seemed to think that he was justified in assuming that, even in the case of the horse, some form of inner articulation of the word sounds was possible. At the same time, in so doing, he did not blink at the psychological difficulty of this hypothesis. The tapping of the foot was to be regarded merely as the expression of the process of inner counting, but not as the motor basis of the process. For this latter purpose, tapping would be quite inadequate, for the number complexes which arise in the summation process of counting could not be differentiated by mere tapping with the foot, any more than a child could learn to count by employing only one finger. Mr. Von Austen evidently imagined the process was somewhat like this. Whenever Hans was about to count to five, he would enunciate inwardly the numbers from one to five, and would accompany each word with a tap of the foot. Since, furthermore, wooden pins and balls would be used, as in the case of children, for giving visual content in learning the significance of the number terms, it seemed as if all the conditions necessary for the formation of number concepts were supplied. However, the most essential thing had to be presupposed, namely, that the horse virtually possessed the general power of forming concepts. Footnotes. 
there are some who believe they are warranted in concluding the opposite from the structure of the animal's brain alone. We may say that the brain of the horse, compared with that of the ape, or even that of the dog, represents a relatively low type of development, but owing to the rapid changes in the views, often contradictory, concerning the nature of the nervous structures and processes underlying the thought process, any conclusion based on such views would be premature. For this reason, we cannot agree with the French physiologist who was dissecting the brain of a horse and, struck by its smallness of size, exclaimed, When I saw your proud look and beautiful neck, I hesitated a moment before mounting upon your back. But now that I have seen how small your brain is, I no longer have any qualm about using you. End of footnotes and that all that had been lacking was the suitable conditions for its development. Mr. von Austen held tenaciously to this conviction, and it was this conviction that was the basis for the infinite patience with which the tests had been pursued. To come now to the learning process itself, we may assume that, at first, whenever the horse began to tap in response to commands, he would receive a reward for this purely mechanical feat. Wooden pins were then planted on the ground and designated as one, one, two, etc., and each time someone would raise the horse's foot as many times as the count demanded. See supplement one. Then Mr. Von Austen would take his stand at the horse's side and would command him, let us say, to tap three. Hans noting merely from his master's position that he was expected to tap would begin. The instructor who had bent forward in order to watch the horse tapping, footnotes, this natural and close connection between the process of attention and the movement towards the object attended to is clearly expressed in our English and French terms, derived from the Latin tendere ad, to reach toward, end of footnote, would involuntarily straighten up again at the third tap, without being conscious of it, and quite unaware that he was thus giving a signal. The horse would be startled, and sometimes he would immediately cease tapping, and sometimes not, but it was only in the first case that he would receive a reward. Thus, unknown to the instructor, an association became established between the sight of the upward jerk of the instructor and the act of ceasing to tap. To be sure, the animal would receive sundry visual impressions from the wooden pins set up before him and the auditory stimulations of the spoken number names, on the basis of which the concepts were to be formed in his mind. But in this chaos of visual impressions, at times there were two wooden pins, then three, then four, sometimes there were the pins, at others the balls of the counting machine, and the babble of word sounds, which evidently meant nothing but noise to him, amidst all this there was but one constant element, the final movement of the instructor's body. The moment the horse reacted to this, he would receive the tidbit at the hands of his overjoyed master, and thus he became more and more accustomed to attend to this jerk, even after it had gradually decreased in scope. And the reason again why this jerk tended to become less pronounced was that the tests were gradually becoming more and more successful. For, corresponding to the degree in which the horse began to react properly, the instructor's tenseness and excitement tended to decrease, and with this decrease of the emotional element in the man's consciousness, the accompanying non-voluntary expressive movement gradually became less pronounced until it attained that extraordinary refinement which it possesses today. 
we noticed also that whenever the horse, for any reason, had to be trained anew, Mr. Von Osten's movements would, on the whole, become somewhat more gross, as, for instance, after the tests with the blinders. There is not a shadow of a doubt that this increase in the movement's extent was entirely unintentional, since the horse could not see his master at all on account of the blinders which had been attached to the trappings. In the same way, it is possible to explain the details. Mr. Van Osten himself said that at first Hans had tapped at times with his left foot, at times with his right, just as he pleased. But later his master taught him to tap only with the right. Whenever he began with the left, Mr. Van Osten would immediately interrupt him, and he was allowed to add only a final tap with his left foot. Thus, this additional tap, which was sometimes made with the left foot, was but the vestige of an earlier rudimentary habit. The signal for it was the stooping position in which the master remained after the head jerk had been made. Whenever Mr. Von Osten had given Hans a small number to tap, he would bend forward only a little. But when he expected a larger number, he would bend forward somewhat more, owing to the desire to observe the tapping more carefully. From the slight inclination of the master's body, the horse would get the cue that he was expected to tap for a short time only. By the greater degree of inclination, he would know that he was to tap for a longer period. In the second case, he tapped rapidly and did not raise his foot as high from the ground, evincing a regard for the saving of energy, which may well be attributed to a horse. And thus arose the connection between the degree of inclination of the instructor's body and the horse's rate of tapping. So, now that the ability to count and solve problems had become fixed, as the old gentleman thought, he began to instruct the horse in other branches. Since everything had to be translated into terms which were to be expressed by means of tapping with the foot, and thus really put into terms of number, which was perhaps natural for an old teacher of mathematics, the same mechanism was involved in these accomplishments as in those of counting, etc. Mr. Von Austen saw the animal's intelligence steadily increase, without having the slightest notion that between his words and the responsive movements of the horse, there were interpolated his own unconscious movements, and that instead of the much desired intellectual feats on the part of the horse, there was merely a motor reaction to a purely sensory stimulus. It has been a common custom of man to posit some extraneous cause for movements resulting from certain involuntary motions of his own, of which he is not aware. Witness the divining rod. Footnote. G. Franzius, Privy Counsel to the Admiralty, Master of the Dry Dock at Kiel, is responsible for the undeserved revival of the ancient belief long buried by science that the divining branch is put into motion solely as the result of the influence of hidden springs or treasures, and without any agency in the person who is holding it. The untenability of this theory comes home to us most forcibly when we recall how various other kinds of things which have been discovered by means of the branch, First, there is gold and water, which are the only ones mentioned by Mr. Franzius. The water can be thus discovered only when it flows below ground, say that which is passing through the mains of a city, whereas the water of the Rhine or the Elbe would have no effect on the branch. Besides gold, every other kind of metal has been supposedly located by the branch, as well as coal, gypsum, ochre, red chalk sulphur and petroleum, according to the desire of the one searching. 
Thus, the very same branch that just a moment ago was influenced by the least bit of underground water may remain unaffected by the presence of a large body of water, if in the meantime I have changed my plan and decided to search for coal or for gold. But that is not all. The branch will point out a murderer or the place where a murder has been committed. It will discover the thief or his trail, as well as the things stolen or merely touched by him. It will indicate where the boundary stone that has been moved ought to stand. The branch further discloses the sins of the person concerning whom it is consulted, as well as their talents and abilities, the journeys they have made, and the wounds they have received. It will indicate whether or not a person has money and how much. It can announce what absent persons are doing, and what apparel they are wearing, and of what colour it is. It will give information on theological, medical, zoological, and botanical questions. In fine, no matter what the question, it will never fail of an answer. The impossibility of explaining the phenomena in a purely physical way was recognised at a very early date. For a long time, the activity of the users of the divining rod seems to have been restricted to the search for metals. The first, or one of the first, to raise his voice against it was the learned G. Agricola, 1556, and after him there were many who all wrote more or less independently of one another. Aside from swindle and chance, it was usually believed that sorcery of the agent of Beelzebub was involved, and for that reason the church has repeatedly forbidden the use of the divining rods. But even in the 17th century, we find some who believed that it was imagination alone that moved the person's hand, and with it the rods. Ortasis etiam fantasia manum in mortem concitante and that points out the essentials of the solution of the phenomenon, and we will not go into the matter here in detail. A number of complex psychological problems arising in connection with it are still waiting to be solved, but this much appears certain. The staff or branch plays no other part in the whole process than that which is served by the three levers in the test described in chapter 4, pages 116 and following. They simply magnify the expressive movements of the diviner, and so we can understand why the instrument serving as rod might be so varied. Hay forks, pickets, clock springs and pendulums, scissors and pliers have been used. A knife and fork, or two pipes fastened together, an open book, and even a sausage grasped at both ends, and thus bent together somewhat, all have served the purpose equally well. We can understand, too, how some adepts are able to achieve the same degree of success, for they do succeed, beyond a doubt, without any rod whatever, but simply by placing the index fingers end to end and bending them somewhat, and even by merely groping about with hands outstretched or folded before them. End of footnotes. And furthermore, when these results appear to be rational, the tendency is to seek their cause in some extraneous intelligence, not his own. Just as the spiritualist ascribes the messages which are revealed to them through table wrapping to certain rational spirits, so Mr. Von Osten credited the intelligence of the horse with the result produced by his own involuntary signs, i.e. with the proper solution of problems. Two other phenomena may have tended to strengthen Mr. Von Osten's belief in Hans's intelligence. One was the misleading similarity with which the horse's supposed errors in computation and the poorly adjusted concentration of the questioner were expressed. 
We recall the difficulty in the case of very high numbers. This might be considered as being due to the horse's ability to work more readily with small rather than with large numbers, whereas, as a matter of fact, it was due solely to the difficulty of the questioner to keep his attention concentrated upon the number for so long a time. We recall also the frequency of errors of one unit too few and one unit too many. These were easily interpreted as miscounts on the part of Hans, but in truth were the result of the poorly concentrated attention of the questioner. Added to this was the seeming independence and self-sufficiency of the horse. Often the number given by him was other than that desired by his master. Usually Hans was in the wrong in such cases, but sometimes, too, he was right. In any case, this served to give the impression of independence of thought which his master so thoroughly believed he possessed, and which was the goal of his endeavours, though as a matter of fact he was farther removed than ever from that goal. Some may ask, does not this whole process partake in the essentials of all training, though cumbersome and misunderstood, to be sure? And is there any need of investigating whether or not the actual development was of the sort here outlined, or whether it actually took the course common to all training? In order to answer this question, we must determine more specifically what we mean by the term training. Usually we take it to mean the establishment of the animal, of definite habits of motor reaction, in response to certain stimuli purposely selected by the trainer, and without involving any process of animal consciousness other than association. Such a conception may be applied also to man, if we assume that the higher thought processes can be eliminated. If that were the case, the above definition would not have to be changed, not even with regard to the word animal, for we must take it in the antique sense of zoon, a signification readopted by modern zoology. The concept may be widened, however, by omitting the differentia of purpose, or even more, by including the habitual association of ideas or images, instead of movements, with certain sensory stimuli, but in doing so we must bear in mind that we are going beyond the usual content which in everyday practice is put into the term training, especially when we cease to regard the presence of purpose in the trainer's mind, both in giving the stimulus as well as in the habituation of the animal to them as essential. When this is done, the conception of training really resolves itself into the much wider conception of habit building, and the whole discussion becomes merely a quarrel over words. In order to obviate this, let us bear in mind that in the following, the word training is always taken in the usual and narrower sense. The term then is still ambiguous only in so far as it has not merely its original significance of the act of purposely habituating a person or an animal to perform certain definite movements, but by transference it is also used to denote the effect, i.e. the occurrence of the movements in question, but this does not really detract from the clearness of the concept itself. Having cleared up the question of definition, let us return to our original problem. Does the hypothetical account of the probable development of the horse's reactions, which is given on pages 213 to 220, represent a case of training? This must be denied decidedly with regard to the tapping of numbers and the solution of arithmetical problems. For here the sensory stimuli which were purposely given, i.e. the wooden pins, the balls and the spoken words, were intended to subserve the function of arousing not movement but thought processes in the horse, whereas the function of the horse's movements was to give expression to these thought processes. 
of the really effective stimuli, the slight movements on his part, the master was never conscious, much less were they purposely made. The same holds true for the up and down, yes and no, etc. For here also Mr. von Osten counted upon the rise of the corresponding concepts, and not merely upon a purely external mechanical association of meaningless sounds with certain movement responses on the part of the horse. This might also explain the genesis of Mr. von Osten's belief that Hans was able to mentally put himself in the place of the questioner. At any rate, it is very improbable that he, Mr. von Osten himself, clearly distinguished between the concept up and the sound of the word up. When we come to consider the horse's selection of the coloured cloths, and even more his leaping and rearing, we find that the distinction between training and instruction vanishes. If we had to deal only with this class of achievements, we might perhaps say, without fear of going very far wrong, that the only difference between this and the ordinary form of training was that Mr. von Austen had intended to train the horse to respond to auditory signs, words, but had unintentionally trained him to respond to visual signs instead. But it is not this type of performance that has become the bone of contention. Just as it would be misleading to maintain that Mr. von Austen's effort was nothing other than a case of training, so it also would be unjustifiable to designate the result of his efforts by that name, since the really effective stimuli were not, as has been pointed out just now, given intentionally. As far as the horse was concerned, it is a matter of indifference whether or not really effective stimuli were given intentionally by the questioner. The animal knows nothing of human purposes, and if he were transferred to a circus, he would find nothing new in the method employed there except the use of the whip. We, however, define our concepts from the human and not from the horse's point of view. We may definitively say, therefore, that the method described cannot be regarded as that of training, neither in its application nor in the effect produced, though in the latter it closely simulates the effect of the training method. Having thus differentiated between the methods of instruction and training, let us now attempt to decide on the basis of such indications as we may possess which of the two was actually represented by the development of the horse's attainments. Surveying the facts which we have at hand, we may say that there are a host of reasons why we cannot assume that it was a case of training. Everything that we know from our own observation and from the well-attested statements of others with regard to the actual process of instruction, weighs against the assumption. Another evidence of this is the long period of time which Mr. von Austen required, both in the case of Hans as well as with his predecessor, whereas the same end would have been much more speedily attained if it had been a case of training. A further argument is the fact that a large horse was selected for the purpose, whereas a small mare would have been far more suitable. Compare Clever Rosa, page 7. Again, the whip, that sorcerer's rod of all professional trainers, was here absent. And finally, many traits of character of Mr. von Austen, as well as his conduct during the whole course of events, militate against such an assumption. He generously turned the horse over to us, as he had given it over to Count Zucastel, Count Matushka, and Mr. Schillings. He eagerly besought a scientific investigation. He had made several reports to different ministries. All these acts could only hasten the denouement. What could have been his motive? 
some thought they detected an effort at pecuniary speculation and an advertisement of june 1902 in the militaire wochenblatt in which hans was offered for sale seemed to confirm the conjecture mr von austen says that this occurred at the time when he himself was sick and had become tired of the job and why should he not be willing to sell even a thinking horse when he had become convinced that any other could be instructed in the same way besides i have it on good authority that after the publication of the september report he received several exorbitant offers to mention only one of them a local vaudeville company was ready to pay him thirty thousand to sixty thousand marks per month he refused every one of these offers some may say that perhaps he wanted still more but if he knew that the day of judgment was close at hand he also knew that before him if ever was the sunshiny day on which to make his hay a more auspicious time he could never hope to see again let us add once more that he never charged admission to any of hans's performances although there were many who were anxious to see the horse and many enthusiasts had come from a great distance and finally he was an old man unmarried and entirely alone a property owner but a man whose wants were few and very simple and his hans was almost his sole companion is it possible that such a man one who had all the pride of gentle birth would become a trickster in old age all for the love of money the unreliability of mr von austen's signs is good proof of their involuntary nature someone who had seen him work with the horse could not have helped noticing that he certainly did not have complete control over the animal and was not able at a given moment to make hans perform a certain feat as would have been the case if the process had been one of training again and again hans failed to make the right count before a large audience one time it took four tests to get him to tap properly up to twenty and in all four i could note clearly that it was mr von austen who by his involuntary premature movements was the innocent cause of the failure on another occasion after hans had done some beautiful work in fractions in the presence of a large number of spectators the master asked him the simple question where is the numerator in a fraction the answer was first to the left and then after a severe reprimand down below and finally up above he often made just such incorrect movements of the heads in the color selecting tests the average of error was quite unpredictable with an equal number of tests on one day half would be successful on another four-fifths on a third one-tenth often hans appeared to be indisposed for days at a time the color tests would often end in expressions of rage on the part of mr von austen and in consequence hans would become startled and would then storm about the courtyard so that it was dangerous to try to approach him some may object that all this was mere comedy and that possibly mr von austen prevented some of the tests from turning out successfully but this objection is to be met by the statement that very often failure would occur just when it was particularly desirable to have the tests appear in a favourable light before a large and enthusiastic assemblage of visitors after such failures he would be downcast on account of hans's contrariness it is also significant that mr von austen's percentage of error corresponds very closely with my percentage of error in the non-voluntary tests page 84 and following whereas he was never able to obtain the errorless results which i obtained in my voluntary experiments but we must be careful not to confuse non-voluntary movement and lack of knowledge of the movement 
and again we must distinguish between knowledge of the grosser and the finer signals. Mr. Von Austen was aware of the grosser movements and talked quite freely concerning them, but in doing so showed that he was quite unaware of their true function. He undertook to show us what we already knew, that when he remained standing perfectly erect he could elicit no sort of response from Hans. Furthermore, that whenever he continued to bend forwards, Hans would respond incorrectly and with very high numbers. He knew also that Hans was distracted in his operations every time the questioner resumed the erect posture while the tapping was in progress. This he demonstrated to us on one occasion in the following manner. He said to Hans, you are to count to seven. I will stand erect at five. He repeated the test five times, and each time Hans stopped tapping when the master raised his body. Several such tests resulted in the same way. Mr. von Osten, however, believed this to be a caprice of the horse, and at first declared that he would yet be able to eliminate it, but later became resignated to it as an irredeemable evil. Mr. von Osten was also aware that the questioner ought not move while the horse was approaching a coloured cloth, and cautioned me in regard to it, though I had already noted as much. And finally, he also knew what influence his calls had while the horse was selecting the cloth, and he told me that it was of great assistance to Hans to be admonished frequently, since thus his attention was brought to bear upon the proper cloth. Yet, when we requested Mr. Van Osten to desist calling, since he was thereby influencing the horse in the choice of the cloth, he answered, Why, that's just what I wish to do. But though the statement that he was aware of the nature of these grosser signs is thus seen to be true, it by no means necessarily implies that he had purposely trained the animal to respond to them. In these observations of his he had builded better than he knew. He evidently had no notion of their scientific significance. But the same thing might have happened to those who were supposed to be somewhat less naive, as is shown by the experience of Mr. Shillings, who quite unconsciously for many months had been giving not only the finer but also the grosser signs, and never guessed the true nature of affairs until I explained it to him. Nor was it an easy matter for me to get at the facts involved in the process, although it now all appears so very simple. On the other hand, it is also true that Mr. Van Osten knew nothing whatever of the finer, more minute signals, such as the final jerk, the head movement upwards, downward, etc., and it is difficult to conceive how he might have gained any knowledge of them. We might, perhaps, conceive of four possible sources. He might have come upon them by chance. But it is extremely improbable that in the million of possible forms of signalling he should have hit upon those that at the same time represented the natural expressive movements, or he might have derived a knowledge of them through a study of the pertinent literature. I have searched diligently for such a source in both the old and the modern literature, but in vain. From the 16th century on there is a series of accounts of horses that were able to spell and solve problems in arithmetic, and the reports of learned dogs go back even to the time of Justinian, in the middle of the 6th century. All these animals were kept for the purpose of speculation, and were exhibited for pecuniary reasons only. Nor does one read that any person could work with these animals offhand, which was the characteristic feature of the Austin horse. Footnote. 
there is only one and i believe it only a seeming exception to be found in the literature on the subject we are told about the year 1840 a french revenue official named leonard had two hunting dogs that besides other things were able to play at dominoes and this not only with their master but with anyone and without the master's assistance the owner had educated them simply for the fun of it and not for pecuniary gain this statement is made by both writers who apparently independently of one another have discussed the case uat and de Tirada. Dutterada himself played with them and gives directions on how to teach dogs to play the game but his exposition is so naive and even ridiculous for those who know anything about the subject that we do not believe it necessary to attempt a detailed refutation uat never saw the animals but he tells us that not only the dog's partner but also the master sat at the game Uat's assertion, however, that not the slightest intimation could have been given by Mr. Leonard to the dog, but that the animal carried on the game by means of its own observation and calculation, appears to me a rather bold statement. After my own experience with dogs, I firmly believe this to have been impossible. Hache Suple, who shares my conviction, explains the matter as follows. The dog would simply place a domino having the number of eyes named by his partner, thus the six adjacent to the six, the three to the three, etc. But even so great a deal would have to be attributed to the dog, although in that case real counting would by no means be absolutely necessary for an association between the number term and the total picture of the corresponding group of eyes would suffice. But we must note that neither of the writers mentions that the numbers were always called aloud by the partner. After the failure of the experiment of Sir John Lubbock, we must doubt very much if a dog is able to match one domino with another having the same number of eyes. We are therefore inclined to believe that this dog continually received signs from its master. These signs probably were visual, perhaps also auditory, and they were by no means involuntary. For in a book on the training of animals, which Leonard, the owner of the dogs, has published, and in which he describes minutely the methods by which they had been trained in their various accomplishments, he does not mention with so much as a syllable the game of dominoes, the thing which he certainly would have dwelt upon, if he had believed in the animal's power of independent thought. He would not have remained silent concerning this greatest, though only apparent, achievement of his educational endeavours, but his whole book is evidence that he was too wise to have thus deceived himself, and our only alternative is to believe that he was playing a joke on his credulous admirers. End of footnotes. In many cases we find mention made of the signs to which the animals reacted, Thus, for the beginning or stopping of the animal's scraping or tapping, the signals were respectively raising and lowering of the eyes on the part of the trainer, lowering and raising of the whip or of the arm, stepping forward or backwards, and as a closing signal, a slight bending forward. The signals for beginning and ceasing to bark in the case of dogs were the trainer's commands to speak, and at the same time his looking at the dog, and then looking away for a closing sign or a mouth movement on the part of the trainer, and then a withdrawing of the left hand which had been resting on the hip. Among the signs for nodding and shaking the head we find the following mentioned, raising and lowering the hand or arm or the whip, 
a movement of the hand toward the horse's nose as a signal for nodding and an arm movement as signal for shaking the head. For this last we find recommended also a slight breathing upon the animal and in the case of dogs a mouth movement simulating blowing or a turn of the fingers. We will not dwell upon the many signals for selecting objects which are mentioned since we have already discussed this point on page 230 and following. In all these instances, it is plain that we have to do with purely voluntary and artificial signals. The only example of involuntary signs which Mr. Von Austen could have found in literature was that of Huggins's dog, which need not be considered here, since, as was said on page 177, the really effective signs in that case were not discovered. A third means by which Mr. Von Austen might have gained a knowledge of the involuntary, natural, expressive signs would have been by observing others. If he had had opportunity of observing another von Austen and another Hans, he might have gotten at the secret. But since this was not the case, this possibility vanishes. A fourth possibility is self-observation. We would then have to assume that Mr. von Austen had first really tried to educate the horse to think, but soon recognised the fruitlessness of such an attempt. At the same time, he then would have noticed his own involuntary movements and their effect upon the horse, and having noted them, voluntarily reduced their extent and utilised them in the training process. But here also there is much that militates against this assumption when we consider how great is the difficulty of consciously refining movements which at first were rather coarse, unless it be by the adjustment of the proper degree of concentration of attention, a subtlety of method of which we could hardly believe Mr. Von Austen capable. We must remember also that in the first publication regarding Hans, which by the way marks the beginning of his career, Das Lesende und Rechnende Fürth by Major General E. Zerbel in the Weltspiegel of July 7th, 1904, we may read the following. He, Mr. von Oster, is always willing to have the horse undergo an examination on the part of a stranger, and promises that after Hans has become fairly well acquainted he will display the same degree of efficiency as he displays with the master himself. This occurred at a time when Mr. Shillings, the man who was destined to prove the truth of the statement, had not yet appeared on the scene. How was Mr. von Austen to know beforehand that every questioner who might appear would execute the same movements that he himself had used? We would recall also that not one in the great multitude of persons who worked successfully with the horse in the absence of Mr. von Austen had noticed, even in the slightest measure, any of these movements in themselves. The position and repute of these persons vouches for their veracity. Among them were the writer of the article just mentioned, the Count zu Castel, Count Matushka, Count von Eichstetl Peterswald, General Kering, Dr. Sander, Mr. H. Suermont, and Mr. H. von Tepelaski. Some of these gentlemen were quite unwilling to believe that they executed such movements. This happened in the case of Mr. von Tepelaski, who had visited Hans ten times, and who had, during the course of these visits, frequently worked alone with the horse, and had received correct responses. Count Eichsted, too, although he was one of those who had been made acquainted with the nature of the movements involved before being allowed to visit the horse, was unable to note them either in his observation of Mr. von Austen or of himself when, in compliance with his own wish, he was left alone with Hans. 
nor did any of the laboratory subjects, some of whom were well trained in introspection, discover the true nature of affairs. They were thoroughly astonished when the facts of the case were explained to them, and I also, as was mentioned on page 100, did not become aware of my own movements until I had noted those of Mr. Von Austen. In fine, everything would indicate that we have here not an intention to deceive the public, but a case of pure self-deception. Footnote. P. Vassmann, S.J., in the third edition of his book, Instinct und Intelligenz im Tierreich, Freiburg, Herder, 1905, discusses the case of Hans and quotes from a letter I wrote him concerning the matter. In the quotation, an error has crept in, which I would like to correct. The statement is ascribed to me that Hans differs from other horses only in his extraordinary power of observation, an unintentional byproduct of intentional training, whereas in my letter I said, unintentional byproduct of intentional education. End of footnotes. This self-deception is easily understood when we consider the two predominant characteristics of the man, the pedantry of the pedagogue, and his proneness to be possessed by a single idea, which is a peculiarity of those of an inventive turn of mind. Adhering closely to a preformed plan, he carefully and narrowly circumscribed the scope and order of instruction. He would not go on to the number five if he were not thoroughly convinced that the four had been completely mastered. Nor would he go on to a more difficult problem in multiplication unless he felt certain that Hans was entirely proficient in the problems of the simpler sort. If he had ever put a question to Hans before its regular order, he would have discovered, to his amazement, that there really existed no difficulty for Hans, and also that the horse really required no appreciable time to acquire new material. Mr. von Austen would have had a like experience if he had asked Hans concerning the value of Chinese coins, or the logarithm of a thousand. However, he never did anything of the kind, but always adhered closely to his plan. He required the questioner to say two and two, and never two plus two, nor were capitals or Latin script to be used in the written material. And if upon request he did so, he did it, without faith in the result, and hence there was failure. And so he declared that, if you use Latin script, Hans will become confused and will be out of sorts for several weeks thereafter. Mr. von Austen is, and ever will remain, the schoolmaster, and will never become the psychologist, the sole vivisectionist, who would work a child with such puzzling questions, and Hans was to him like a child. Thus the old man believed himself to be a witness of a continuous organic development of the animal soul, a development which, in reality, had no other existence than in his own imagination. Added to this pedantry was an extraordinary uncritical attitude of mind, induced by his obsession by one favourite idea which blinded him to all objections. He met objectionable observations on the part of others in one of two ways. One method was by attributing to Hans certain remarkable qualities, such as an extraordinary keenness of hearing and a wonderful power of memory, 
or again certain defects such as moodiness and stubbornness which as a matter of fact were only so many back doors by which he might escape from the necessity of offering adequate explanations when hans was able to give offhand a gentleman's name which he had heard years before it was called a case of extraordinary memory when the horse insisted that two times two was five he maintains that it was an example of animal stubbornness there was still a simpler method of overcoming inconvenient objections and that was by ignoring them altogether the number one the simplest and most fundamental in the system of numbers was one which was most difficult for hans page sixty seven and following mr von Osten was aware of this but thought little of it during the very first visit by professor stumpf mr von Osten asked the horse by how much must you increase the numerator of the fraction seven-eighths in order to get a whole number? Hans repeatedly answered incorrectly and always tapped numbers that were too great. The same question was then asked concerning the fraction five-eighths and immediately there was a correct response. The favourite number, three. Mr. von Osten said very naively, in the case of the difference of one, he always goes wrong. It was just what I expected. Mr. von Osten still relates that the distinction between right and left created far greater difficulty for Hans than all of the work in fractions, and that even today it is not thoroughly established. Also, that the selection of coloured cloths is often a failure still, although it was one of the first things in which he was given instruction. It appears never to have dawned upon Mr. von Osten that the arts in which Hans seemed to excel also formed the standing repertoire of so many trained horses, regarding whom it was well known that they owed all of their cleverness to the training given them by their masters. This fact alone should have induced him to make some form of critical investigation. When Hans suddenly became a celebrity, and he, himself, the object of an enthusiastic following, the whole affair evidently took Mr. von Osten off his feet. Strangers took the further instruction of the horse in charge, and the rate and degree of Hans's progress became disconcerting. One day it came to pass that the horse even understood French, and the old gentleman, whose apostolic exterior had always exerted a high degree of suggestion upon his admirers, in turn fell captive to the spell of retroactive mass suggestion. He he no longer was uneasy concerning the most glaring kinds of failure. On one occasion he even insisted upon the completion of a series of tests in which procedure was without knowledge, which promised no results whatever. The animal's stubbornness must be broken, he commented. On the other hand, he regarded every criticism as a form of personal insult and once he showed a member of the committee of the society for the protection of animals the door because the man without having looked at his watch wanted to show it to hans and ask him the time many other critics had similar experiences summarizing the remarks of this chapter our judgment must be as follows it is in the highest degree improbable that mr von Osten purposely trained the horse to respond to certain cues it is also improbable that he knew that in every test he was giving signals although i can form no judgment concerning what happened after the publication of the latest reports to assume the contrary would land us in the middle of insoluble contradictions of the many ascertained facts in the case the explanation here essayed however should prevent that to be sure we must then reckon with curious inner contradictions in mr von Osten's character 
but such contradictions are to be found upon earnest analysis in nearly every human character and mr von austen must say with the poet ich bin kein ausgeklugert buch ich bin ein mensch mit seinem widerspruch end of section 10 recording by jordan watts oxfordshire